Well, with this next lesson, we come tonight to turn our attention to the other side of this debate we've been studying about the nature of Christ's atonement. And tonight we, we consider what's called limited atonement. Now, in studying the, the atonement itself, which centers on the, the death of Jesus on the cross, as we've been talking about, it, it, it really is all about answering this, in a way, a basic question, for whom did Jesus die? On whose behalf did Christ come and, and offer himself up on the cross to make atonement? It sounds like such a simple question on one hand, yet it becomes the most, one of the most controversial questions to answer that really splits people in half, where some will answer for everybody and some will answer, well, for the elect. And so we're studying both sides of this and trying to figure it out. We don't want to, although it can be controversial and divisive to some, we don't at the same time want to shy away from the hard questions we want to humbly with God's help approach them try and study the scriptures and see if we can find out just what the Bible says the Bible is clear and it should be clear now so far we've studied one answer to the question and that is the answer given by Arminianism which goes by the the title of unlimited atonement and they believe that Jesus died for all people without exception this, of course, is the more popular view, especially in a culture that has really reduced God to being love and only love. So that, that's going to be popular. But at the same time, in Lesson 20, so last Wednesday's lesson, we learned that there are some actually very serious, and I would even say fatal flaws, to that view. That the, the idea that Jesus died for all without exception, it's actually plagued by some serious problems. And we're not going to recap that now. That We've kind of finished that. That was Lesson 20, if you weren't here you can go online and get that. Today, though, we're, we're now it's time to move on to consider the other side of this debate when it comes to the extent of the atonement and, and talk about and study limited atonement in contrast to unlimited atonement. This is the position of Calvinism, which states that Jesus died for the elect, that he came and died on the cross for God's people, the church. The Father sent the Son to redeem a specific bride, and Jesus died on their behalf, effectively securing their salvation. And so, as we did uh, two lessons ago, I think lesson 19, we're going to start off tonight just trying to just understand this view better. Understand what Calvinists believe, what, what, what exactly are they saying about the nature of Christ's death, what exactly are they saying when, when they mean he died for the elect only? Just to further clarify and understand what they believe. And then we're going to secondly aim tonight to, to discover why. What kind of support do they give for this notion? It, it is less popular, right? So how do they support this belief that Jesus, he actually didn't die on the cross for all people in the same way. Rather, he died and he came specifically for the elect, for God's chosen ones. It's controversial, right? At least in the world. So what kind of support do they give? What kind of biblical arguments do they give to support this? That's what we're going to study tonight. Just kind of set it up, further understand and explore limited atonement per Calvinism. And then next week, we, we're going to take that critical look at it and examine it, see if the, their claims hold up. So it's very parallel to what we did with unlimited atonement a couple weeks ago. And so tonight, we're just diving deeper into limited atonement. So we're going to begin now with limited atonement defined, just to, we've said it, it's, it's not that complicated to be honest, but just to clarify once again some definitions. So once again, limited atonement, it's the view of Calvinism, 
Minus the four-point Calvinists, a little group of Calvinists who drop limited atonement and they, they hold to unlimited atonement. Already covered them. We'll leave that in the past. At the same time, though, many Calvinists reject this label of limited atonement because it can be misleading. As we learned last time, everybody limits the atonement one way or another. And so many Calvinists per- prefer better terms such as definite atonement or particular redemption. You'll hear those used oftentimes more than limited atonement. Definite atonement or particular redemption. And those are carrying the idea that Jesus died not for all people without exception, but for all people without distinction. Meaning when he died for all, it means all all type of people, rich and poor, men and women, Jew and Gentile, all types of people he died for. But more specifically, he really came for the elect. He came to save and atone for the group of people given to him by the Father in eternity past, all according to the will of God. Now, surely Christ's death was sufficient to save the entire world. Everybody believes that, though. That, that, that's not really saying anything. Everybody believes that. The real question is, what was the intention? What was God the Father's intention in sending the Son? What was Christ's intention as he offered himself up? Who was he thinking about? Who was he doing this for in his mind, in his will? That's the real question. And the Calvinists would say, for the elect, for God's chosen people. It's a real quick side note. Some of you haven't been with us throughout this study, and election may still be a little bit of a foreign concept to you. I'll keep telling you, go back to our website. It's all there. Listen through all those studies on election. That really is, at this point, we're treating as foundational, like we've already covered. But you need that foundation to make sense of a lot of these arguments. So I'll just keep pointing you back. You can always do that on your own time. Both Arminians and Calvinists affirm election, that God chose some beforehand for salvation. It's just that Calvinists uphold God's sovereignty in that choice, not man's sovereignty in that choice. Anyway, Calvinists point out that Arminians and and four-point Calvinists, they really water down the nature of the atonement, where, you know, Christ's death, it becomes not, not an actual atonement, but a potential atonement, where they believe that Jesus died to make people savable on the cross, But in contrast, Calvinists believe Jesus truly atoned for the sins of the elect, effectually securing their salvation on the cross. Meaning his atonement, it's going to lead to the salvation of the elect without fail. And all those for whom Christ died, they will be saved. There's no other outcome that all those for whom he made atonement, they will be freed from the wrath of God. They will be saved. Just a little summary here. You have in your notes the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's just a historically reformed faith, and that would tend, obviously, towards Calvinism. They state limited atonement this way in uh, chapter 11, part 4 of their, their doctrinal statement. But they say that God did, from all eternity, decree to justify all the elect. And Christ did, in the fullness of time, die for their sins and rise again for their justification. Nevertheless, they're not justified until the Holy Spirit does, in due time, actually apply Christ unto them. But you'll note here, they believe that Christ, in the fullness of times, he came and he died for for their sins, meaning the elect. So like I said, I mean, it's it's not complicated, to be honest. The concept, it's, I think you're with me, it's pretty simple. Okay, he died for everyone or he died for the elect. 
two options are simple. It really comes down to uh, the arguments behind it. So now let's, let's really spend most of our time here with the second section on limited atonement supported. As we did with unlimited atonement, what kind of lines of reasoning or, or support do Calvinists give to, to back up this claim that Jesus died just for the elect? Well, we'll look, we'll look at five of them. We're mostly, you know, we're, it's not quite summarizing, but it's not super in-depth. Like I said, we're going to leave the, the critical evaluation of these arguments until next week. But I want to just kind of give them all to you at once so you can see just the, the big picture why Calvinists contend that Jesus came and died only for the elect. So let's see if we can get through all five of these reasons. So here we go. Number one, limited atonement matches the particular language of Scripture. I know that's kind of wordy, but limited atonement matches the particular language of Scripture. Not universal, the particular language of Scripture. We've been talking a lot about language. And both sides, they they build arguments off of the language of Scripture. Arminians make a big case based on the universal language. You know the times where it says Jesus died for the world and, and stuff like that, as we've covered but as we also learned last time, the, the universal language issue, it's, it's not so cut and dry. It's not an open and show, shut case because quite often this language does not mean all without exception. There are exceptions. For example, John twelve nineteen, the Pharisees were saying that, hey, look, the, the world has gone after Jesus. That's what they say, like the, the world has gone after him. And of course, that's not all without exception. They're, they're just using that in a, in a general hyperbolic sense. They don't actually mean everybody ever born. And so these words can be used in, in many different ways. Suffice it to say for now, Calvinists contend that when the Bible speaks of Jesus dying for the world, it means all people without distinction, not all people without exception. Now, like I said before, that we're going to come back and study that issue later. So we're still not fully there yet. But the point I'm making here, though, is that at the same time, Calvinists also point out that there are many instances where the Bible uses not universal language, but particular language when it comes to the atonement. Meaning, there are many verses about Christ's death that use language that that limits his death to the church or to the elect or to God's people. It's using not universal, but particular language. And Calvinists believe that these verses make clear that the saving intention of Christ, that he died for the elect, that for the church. This will make sense when we look at some examples. We surveyed these verses a while ago, but I gave you some of the highlights in your notes that we'll look at some of these. You know, for example, we've got a category of verses where, which talk about Jesus dying for the church or God's people or, or us, meaning believers. So you have Matthew one twenty one. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. John 10. In fact, that's a big one. Why don't you turn to John 10? I'll mostly summarize these, but you can crack your Bibles open and follow along John 10 with me. We'll see a few others from John later on as well. But John 10, you're going to remember this. Christ, the good shepherd, teaching about his relationship to the sheep. They know his voice. He knows them. They, they know him. They follow him as he calls them by name. 
And then let's just, for the sake of time, look at verse 11. If, if you're already there, John 10, verse 11. Christ says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He came to lay down his life for the sheep. And not all are, are a sheep. Look at verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. There is this, and we will study, this is one of the passages we'll really come back later and look at in detail in the next week or two. But you get the picture of this, there's this group of people known as the sheep in contrast to the not sheep or the goats. Whom the Father has given to Jesus, they are his sheep. Even before they were born, they were his allotment. And he came to lay down his life for them. They know Jesus. He knows them. He calls them by name. And uh, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. Verse 26, you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. Why didn't they believe? Because they're not sheep. That They were not of that group. We've looked at this passage many times before. It's a, it's a big one. And, and nonetheless, it's a clear example of, of where the Bible uses this very particular language in connection with Jesus dying for. It's atonement language, right? Lay down my life for the sheep coming from his own mouth it's at least calvinists would say that's significant acts 20 28 speaks of the church of god which christ purchased with his own blood he purchased the church with his own blood that's more atonement language that he, he wasn't purchasing everybody he was purchasing a bride the church with his blood you have passages like romans 5 8 which speaks of God demonstrating his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Obviously talking about believers, the love of God, a special love shown toward believers and that Christ died for us. That's particular language. Romans 8, I'll save that one for later. Romans 8 actually. 2 Corinthians 5.21 That God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Paul talking about believers or the church, connecting this atonement language to, to us, limiting it to seemingly to us, to the church. Galatians 1, verse 3 and 4, he says, Grace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. A passage speaking of God's will sending Jesus to rescue us from the present evil age. Not everyone was rescued. Nor was it the Father's intention to rescue everyone, but just us, the church, the elect, his, his people. Colossians 1.24, it continues, God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of Christ in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, that's, that's a whole pile of atonement language used, all particularly, not universally, in connection with the church. Likewise, Titus 2.14, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Now we're getting really explicit that Christ came to do what? To, to get a people, to purify a people by dying for a people for his own possession. That, by definition, is not everybody. 
that seems to be limiting his work to this people, which we know obviously is, is the church, us. 1 Peter 2.24, that Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That, that's, that's as simple as atonement language as you get. Just you know, We're asking the question, for whom did Jesus die? For whom did Jesus bear sins in his body on the cross? And 1 Peter 2.24 says, well, for us, for believers, for the church. And then Revelation 5.9 is a, an important one where Christ in heaven is exalted. And they say, worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain. And you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That's one of the clearest statements you're going to get. We'll revisit that as well. But in heaven, Christ is exalted. Why? Because he purchased for God men with his blood. So we're talking atonement. People from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Not every tribe and tongue and people and nation, but people from every. They didn't have to add those words. If Jesus really purchased everybody, why would they add people from every tribe of tongue and people and nation? It's particular language. You get what I'm saying now, right? The same thing goes with some passages that speak of Jesus dying for many. So like I said, both sides are going to make a language case. You've got verses we looked at last time, Jesus died for all. Those have to be answered and, and contended with. Here's passages speaking of Jesus dying for many, in contrast to all. These likewise have to be contended with. Like Isaiah 53 speaks of Christ, God's servant, who will justify the many and bear their iniquities. He he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for transgressors. Matthew 20, 28, Mark 10, 45, that Christ, he said, uh, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I mean, there's verses on both sides here, right? It makes you wonder, though, why didn't he say all? That the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for all. Why, why would Christ himself say many? It's got to mean something. We've got to figure this out. And we're, we're not done, but these are verses that, well, Calvinists will say, you know, this is particular. It's more particular than you might think. Matthew 26, 28. Christ talking about, you know, the instituting the Lord's Supper. And he speaks of the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. I mean, he's, he's right before the cross, and he's talking about his atoning blood, and he's saying it's, it's being given for many for forgiveness. What does that mean? Hebrews 9.28 speaks of Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. There's a verse that speaks of Christ's first and second coming. And then the second coming, he comes to to save who? The elect, God's people. And that verse is a parallelism which connects his first coming and his second coming. His first coming, he came for who? Well, this verse would stand to reason the same group, the elect, God's people. He bore their sins. We'll leave this part here. This, This just... Like we like last time, it's just it's begging further study. You, you have to go through all these language verses, almost one by one, really, and just make your case and, and look at them in context and say, we've got the universal verses, we've got the particular verses. Which one is it? 
And uh, the point I'm making now is simple. Calvinists will use these verses as part of their argument that there are many passages that speaks of his death as being quite particular, not universal, not unlimited, but particular. They have to be answered, uh, accounted for as well. So we'll do that. We're going to come back and have a, a, one of those studies where we're going to just hit all the verses again. But for now, it is what it is. You get one of their main lines of, of reasoning. You have many verses which uphold this limited atonement. Number one, uh, limited atonement matches the particular language of Scripture. Okay, let's keep moving, though. Let's get through these other reasons here. Number two, limited atonement upholds an actual atonement. It upholds an actual atonement. You know, like we mentioned last week, everybody limits the atonement one way or another. Everybody essentially believes in some form of a limited atonement. Arminians, they take the universal language to its fullest, but therefore they're forced to limit the efficacy of the atonement, meaning the power, what it accomplishes. The atonement, they say, is made for everybody, but it it doesn't actually save everybody. It merely makes people savable. So they've really limited what the atonement does. It doesn't actually save people. It just, you know, makes them savable. They limit the power, the efficacy of the atonement. Calvinists, however, they indeed, they limit the extent. It's not, it wasn't made for everybody. It was made for the elect. But in doing so, they secure an atonement that actually atones. It actually atones. Calvinists, therefore, see an unlimited atonement in its power, in its efficacy. They take the language of the atonement to its fullest And this becomes one of their main arguments for an atonement limited in extent. And to put that another way, the argument basically goes like this. If Jesus really made atonement for everyone, everyone would be saved. And I bet, you know, I trust that makes sense to you. Uh, That should make sense. Like if you really died for everybody, everybody should be saved. Just You have to understand the nature of his atonement, the nature of what he was doing on the cross, that has to define the scope of whom it applies to. So if Jesus was merely making a provision of salvation, if he was making a potential atonement, then yeah, you can apply that to everybody. And that's what Arminians do. But if Jesus died to truly save a people, to secure a bride then his death was for the elect only. And this is what Calvinists believe, that Jesus died to actually save his people, the elect. And they say this is clear from the language of the atonement itself. Here's a point that always, well, rather, it rarely comes up in this discussion, but it really should. The question is, for whom did Jesus die? Or who did Jesus die for? If you want to end your sentence with that. Proposition, But when people talk about this, like Jesus died for all people, or he died for the world, you really have to stop and ask, what do you mean when you say Jesus died for them? Can you define died for? Like, what does that mean? To die for someone. You got to clarify that, right? And we did that back in lesson 17. We spent a whole lesson studying the language of the atonement. So let me remind you what the Bible means when it says Jesus died 
died for someone. Some like to just oversimplify the discussion. And it's easy to say, well, he died for everybody. What are you really saying when you say that? Well, what you're saying is this. It means Jesus redeemed them. That he reconciled them to God. That he made full propitiation for their sins. That he conquered Satan on their behalf. And that he offered himself up as their substitute sacrifice. That's what you're saying when you say Jesus died for someone. And when you start to speak of Christ's atonement using this biblical language, it becomes increasingly more difficult to think of it on behalf of everybody, that he did that for everybody. He, he reconciled everybody to God. He redeemed everybody, freed them all from bondage to sin and Satan. He bore the wrath of everybody and, and spent it. It's all spent. He drank the full cup of wrath for everybody. If that's true, again, like we said before, why, why is anybody going to hell? There's no wrath left. He, he paid it all. He reconciled everybody. What, what's the disconnect here, if that's true? Really, to make this atonement apply to all people, Arminians are forced to rob the language of the atonement and just leave it in shambles. Or they, they maintain this assertion that Jesus just made a, a universal provision of atonement. You know, his was a potential Atonement, it's just a provision. It's made for everybody. You've got to come and, and, and drink to, to receive, so to speak. So, so basically what they're saying is when the Bible says, like 1 John 2, that Jesus died to make propitiation for the sins of the world, it really means he made a, a provision of propitiation. He didn't actually bear the wrath for everybody. He just he made a provision in general for, for, sins of, for the sins of the world. Or when it says Jesus died... To reconcile us to God. It really means he died to you know, potentially reconcile us to God. You're not actually reconciled by his death. You've got to believe for that to happen. And I don't know about you, but the problem to the, with this to me, I hope it's clear, is that it's just not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say any of this. The Bible never speaks of Christ's death and its accomplishment as potential, but actual. It never inserts this provisional or potential language his death was a real victory on the cross, not a, a potential victory. It was an actual atonement, not a potential or provisional atonement. I see what they're saying. This is the main point of four-point Calvinists, and I understand it. I've just never been convinced by it. They've got a, that, that, to me, the burden of proof is on them to prove that this language can be provisional or potential. Bottom line, Arminians are forced to change the very nature of the atonement to keep this unlimited atonement, that it applies to everybody. If you're going to have it apply to everybody, you've got to really weaken it, that it's not an actual atonement. The Calvinists, however, would rather see the essential nature of the atonement upheld, and this plays a large factor in them limiting the atonement to the elect. And the, the example we gave last week that I, I trust kind of wraps this second point up, the bridge, remember that? You've got a bridge... This is wide, mighty river, and you need a bridge across to be reconciled to God. And the Arminian will give you a bridge that's super wide. It can fit everybody on the planet, but it only takes you halfway across the river. But the Calvinist will, will give you a bridge that's short, it's narrow. Not, it can't fit everybody, but it, it spans the whole river. It will take you all the way to the other side. And that's really what you get in these different views of the atonement. Now... Again, the biblical support for this argument lies just in the definition and the usage 
of all this atonement language like reconciliation and propitiation. We already covered that in Lesson 17, and we'll, we will actually revisit some of that in the next few weeks, so we'll leave that for now. Number three, limited atonement showcases the greater love of God. It showcases the greater love of God. You know, something we also learned last week, I'm referencing last week a lot because this is a big study in contrast, of course, right? That the Arminians, they believe unlimited atonement upholds the love of God. So they use the love of God as one of their arguments. God loves all people the same. He desires for all people to be saved. And so he sent Jesus to die for all people that all might have the chance of salvation. But we exposed many of the fundamental flaws in this notion last time. For example, the vast majority of people, they never even hear of Christ's death for them, which means that Christ's death for them literally goes to waste. He died for people, and most will never even hear about it, so they really didn't get a chance to believe or really to be saved. Also, Arminians will never get around the fact that God created a world in which most people go to hell. And God's ultimate sovereignty and salvation, it just can't be avoided. He's the creator. You can't get around it. It's His will is done in the end. But the better solution, though, it's not to deny God's sovereignty or to deny His supremacy in order to uphold this sentimental view of God's love for all people. Rather, the biblical understanding is, is to learn from God's sovereignty and salvation to learn that although he does have a general love for all mankind, for all people who are created in his image, yes, there's a general love for all mankind, but at the same time, he reserves a special love for his chosen ones, that he has a, a greater love, a saving love for the elect. And this special love only serves to magnify God's grace and God's glory. This special love of God, some people are scandalized by this idea. It's no different than the concept of election itself, which again, that's why I keep saying you got to get that all figured out. And we, we've already done that. We've gone through that. But hopefully you've got that clear in your mind. But the special love of God, it's evident throughout all scripture that God loved Jacob, not Esau. And, and the, there's this chosen lineage traced all throughout the Bible that throughout history, God has just set his special love on some people to bless them, to save them, while passing over others. All simply according to his, his own will, his own hidden purposes. God's chosen people, they weren't better than anyone else. They weren't worthier than anyone else. Rather, God's special love for them is simply tied to his unconditional election. As we studied, unconditional election. He just simply chose to set his love on some people. And this in turn, though, this is tied to Christ's atonement. That God sending Jesus to make atonement, it's a reflection of his special love, his saving love for his people. Before creation, God chose to set his love, a special love, on this future people and predestine them unto salvation. Right? And then in, in the time, in the right time, God sent forth his son to die for them, to redeem them, 
that they can be brought into this special love of God. Just as God did not set his love on everyone and elect everyone, so God did not send his son to redeem everyone or to die for everyone. His purpose was clear that he sent Christ to redeem this bride who was the object of God's electing love and is consistent with God's will. His will of election is the same as his will of atonement, sending Christ. I'll just I'll reiterate this point by rephrasing it this way. Why did God provide atonement through Jesus? Why did God send Jesus? What was his motivation? It was love. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God's love is the motivation for the atonement. But love for whom? Understand the father does not love people because Jesus died for them. Rather, Jesus died for his people because the father loved them. Right? God's love came first. He loved this people and then he sent Jesus to die for this people who are the objects of his, his special love, his electing love. God's love is an eternal love, it's an electing love, and it's an atoning love. And that love, as, as scandalizing this thought might be to the world, by his own hidden will, it's limited to the elect. Just listen to Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives. Not love every woman. Love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That he might present to himself the church in all her glory. Having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she would be holy and blameless. There's a lot of significance in that verse about the atonement that... I'm going to save that thunder for next time. But just already think, is that a particular love? Is that a a special love for for the church? And that, by the way, is what is the basis of our special love, our particular love for our wife, right? You can already draw that connection. So anyway, Calvinists will contend that number three, limited atonement. Love of God, it is involved. That God is love, but it actually... It's the limited atonement that showcases his real love, his special love, his saving love. Number four, limited atonement fits the Trinitarian plan of salvation. I know these aren't really catchy, but there's no way around it, right? Limited atonement fits the Trinitarian plan of salvation. They're just kind of truth claims. It fits the Trinitarian plan of salvation. You're talking about God's special love. That really touches on God's triune plan of salvation. And the point here is that this is a unified plan. This is a consistent plan among the three members of the Trinity. That they're completely united in their saving intention and work. And according to Arminianism, the three members of the Trinity, they're all basically working separately for our salvation, but their intentions are really for three different things. They're, they're all trying to do something different, the three members of the Trinity. You've got the Father who used his foreknowledge to see who would believe, and he elected them, so he's working on behalf of this elect group. But then the Son comes, and he just dies for everybody anyway, even though not all will be saved. However, the Spirit only really moves in people who hear the gospel, 
which is a third group entirely. So you have the Father working on behalf of the elect, the Son working on behalf of everybody, and the Spirit really working in those who actually hear the gospel. You have three groups that the Trinity divided in their efforts. But such a discordant plan of salvation, that that's not what you get in the picture of the Bible. God and the Trinity is completely unified in will and purpose and saving intention. And to the contrary, the triune God is pictured as, as being completely unified in saving purposes. You probably know Jesus. He explicitly said several times that he came to do the will of my Father. That the, 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 the will of the Father and the will of the Son, they're coextensive. They're the same thing. And, and obviously we would add the Spirit to that as well. They're, they're never mixed. They're never at odds. And so Christ's will and God's will, they're, they're going to be united in all aspects of his mission. And that includes the atonement. But remember, God's will in salvation begins not at the cross, but where? When? Eternity past. That, that's where God's will in regards to salvation begins. In eternity past, where we learned that God set his special love on his people, the elect, through this sovereign election, Ephesians 1, in eternity past, before the foundation of the world. And so God's intention and his saving efforts from eternity past is directed toward the elect. That's crystal clear. And then when the time came, the Father sent the Son into the world to save that same people, the elect. Only elect, only the elect will be saved by Christ, prepared as a bride made ready for her husband. And then, finally, as, as sinners come to hear the gospel, you have God the Holy Spirit who effectually calls them and renews them and enables them to come and believe. Yeah, the Spirit may work to convict the whole world, but the Spirit's saving activity is likewise limited to the elect. He only effectually calls the elect. So here's the point. When it comes to the intent, the provision, and the application of the atonement, that the three persons of the Trinity are totally united. God the Father intended salvation for the elect. God the Son provided salvation for the elect. And God the Spirit applies salvation for the elect. And we would add for the elect only. Father, Son, and Spirit, they're completely unified in, in what they're trying to do. In, a, in the, all aspects of our salvation. From its plan, to its provision, to its application. And this argument is another one of the main reasons Calvinists give for, for believing Jesus died for the elect only. That, that it, it presents a unified plan of God. The question here is, does, does this hold up? Is this true? Is this really supported? Again, we're saving that for next time. We're not evaluating these claims yet, just trying to understand them. And so with that in mind, let's, let's finish up now by looking at the fifth of these claims. Just to give us this big picture idea of what, what they believe and why. Lastly now, limited atonement flows from Christ's priestly office. It flows from Christ's priestly office. Calvinists argue that not only is the Trinity unified and consistent in God's plan to save a people, but so is God the Son, specifically. 
In other words, Jesus fulfills his role on behalf of our salvation in a consistent basis. We've been learning this a lot recently in the book of Hebrews, right, about his priestly office. And that really Christ's role in salvation, it's, it's to be understood through the lens of, of the Old Testament sacrificial system, where really God gave Israel the sacrificial system, that they would have a framework and a point of reference for understanding God's real salvation in Christ, right? And so essential to the sacrificial system what, what was a priest and a sacrifice. And we know that Jesus comes as the perfect priest, the perfect sacrifice, where on the cross he offered himself up as that ultimate lamb of God to, to take away the sins of the world, to, to die for his people. And through that death on the cross, as that once-for-all sacrificial lamb, Jesus also functioned as the high priest, the one who makes atonement on behalf of his people. And it's here from this priestly function that Calvinists draw a connection to Christ's limited atonement. So think back to the Day of Atonement, which Christ made a new, obviously, real Day of Atonement. The high priest, he made atonement for whom? For the sins of, of the people, God's people. He didn't make atonement for, for all the nations or for the Gentiles. It was an atonement limited to God's people. Furthermore, how did the priest make atonement on the Day of Atonement? Through sacrifice and intercession. Those two key words, through sacrifice and intercession. Both were necessary. The priest would first make a sacrifice on behalf of the people by slaughtering the, the spotless lamb or goat. And then the priest would bring that blood before God's presence, sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat atop the Ark of the Covenant as, as an act of intercession. None of the people were allowed into God's presence, but the priest represented them, and he made atonement through this act of intercession, sacrifice and intercession for the people. And this is where Calvinists connect some clear statements in Scripture about Christ's priestly work. And one of them is in John 17. And if, you're, if your Bible is still open to John 10, you can turn over there to John 17. John 17 is regarded as Christ's high priestly prayer. You've heard that before. His high priestly prayer took place on the night before his death. And, and there we learn very explicitly that as this high priest about to die for his people, that he intercedes not for the world, but only for his people. He prays and intercedes in a saving manner for his people. He straight up says, John 17, verse 9, regarding his disciples, he says, I ask on their behalf. Regarding them, them believing, right? And they believe that you sent me, verse 8. Verse 9, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Here's this, another reference to this group of people. They belong to God. They're given to Jesus. And now he's interceding for them as high priest. Sounds kind of limited to me. The same thing comes in Romans 8. This is the verse I skipped earlier. I'll just read for you Romans 8, 33 and 34. It says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? And then it says, Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes 
for us. There's a verse we'll actually look at big time in, in the future, but it connects his death and his intercession explicitly to the elect. Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? Christ died for them and he's interceding for them. Again, that sounds pretty particular to me, his priestly office, his intercessory work. And so from this, Calvinists would argue that the extent of Christ's intercession is going to match the extent of his sacrifice. Everybody believes, even Arminians, that Jesus, as high priest, he only intercedes for the church. Everybody believes that, that his intercessory job is only for God's people. But Calvinists would say that that seems to clearly argue, and there's verses to support it, that his, his sacrificial work as high priest is going to have the same object as well, meaning for his people. Those for whom he intercedes are those for whom he died, and vice versa. That's the point here. That he, just as he intercedes for his people only, so he sacrificed himself for his people only. And so limited atonement flows from Christ's priestly office, a fifth argument. And with that, we're going to stop here. As with unlimited atonement, we're not trying to, to solve this issue tonight or really make any judgment calls about it. We're just trying to get a better sense of now let's look at what Calvinists believe. Here's what they claim about limited atonement. Here's why. Here's their support. So we've got that big picture. We looked at five reasons in particular. And so now next week, we'll come back and we'll, we'll evaluate their claims under much closer scrutiny. And just hopefully all this is bringing us closer where we can come to a conclusion about our big, yet I mean, a simple question, for whom did Jesus die? So we'll, we'll get back to it next week. All right, let me pray for us. Our great God in heaven, we, we just want to thank you tonight for the atonement. We've said a lot about it, and I feel like many thoughts around it. But we don't want to just let it be an intellectual exercise. We have to guard ourselves against that all the time that, that we're, we're looking at these great truths. And although we're, we're still trying to figure things out, Lord, in a sense, and, and try and get to the bottom of the question, for whom did Jesus die? But we can and we must praise you right now because at the very least, coming here as believers, we can say for certain you, you died for, for us. You died for me, Lord. I'm here. We, we believe in you. And so we want to reflect and remember just everything Christ did for us, that we know he redeemed us, that he reconciled us to you, and that he ransomed us from sin, he freed us from bondage, and he made propitiation for our sins. We can say that with utter and complete confidence, Lord, and, and from that we can praise you and thank you and just marvel at the work you did for us from eternity past to the present and even to the future when we will be made uh, glorified. We thank you for this, this plan and this provision and this work of salvation. May it always warm our hearts and, and just remind us who we are, a people, a church, a bride bought for Christ. And may we give him the glory with our lives that, that he is due, that he deserves. He is worthy. You're worthy, Lord. And so may we render you praise every day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.